You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. Can we do a mic check, please? Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Jennings. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. My name is John Gordon. I'll be your host. And I'm your host, Katie Burke. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited Podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America. We bring the resource to you, the DU Podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Today on the show, we have a special guest on the show. I have John Munson. He is a decoy collector, enthusiast, outdoorsman. All things waterfowling. Hi, John. Welcome to the show. Hi, Katie. Thanks. Actually, John is here live, which is nice. We have him here from uh, Des Moines. Well, not Des Moines, but Des Moines area. Very near Des Moines, yes. yeah. Coming down, he's here in town, so I get to talk to him live, which is always a treat. So, uh, since, again, you're a new guest to the show, I like to have everyone kind of tell their background and their entrance into the outdoors, hunting, waterfowling, and then, um, well, I have to hear your first decoy story. So, but let's start with just the outdoors in general. So how did you get into the outdoors, waterfowl hunting, and that sort of thing? Well, I grew up in uh, rural Iowa. Uh, my family was uh, hunting and fishing enthusiasts. Um, it just so happened my, my dad died early in life when I was 11 years old, so uh, we had just gotten a taste of hunting, for instance. Hunting was probably my first uh, priority back then when I was a kid. So that that kind of added focus to my to my life, you might say that that I um, I wanted to do everything 
you know, really well for my dad and all that kind of stuff, even mm-hmm. after he was gone. So <clears throat> waterfowling, uh, we duck hunted and that kind of thing, but uh, it was never as you as you hear now or think now about duck hunting with blinds and decoys and stuff. It was all jump shooting on ponds and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. So, um, so as I got older in life and increased my uh, repertoire of, of people that were around me, uh, I ran into duck hunters uh, that actually used boats and blinds and and boy, you know that was just the cat's meow. So, <laughs> so that's kind of how it started. Uh, young, uh, uh, young in my adult life, I started uh, rubbing shoulders with some of these uh, guys that took me under their wing and so forth, and and I really had a passion for. Uh, waterfowling. Yeah. Um, my dad had a shooting jacket that has one. Uh, in fact, I have it in my decoy room. Uh, it was a shooting jacket that had some patches on it for a shoot, shooting uh, state level uh, trap and that kind of things. And on the back was the original Ducks Unlimited patch. Oh, that's awesome. So um, Ducks I've Unlimited. I've seen this actually. You said this to me. Yeah. So, uh, so Ducks Unlimited was actually um, uh, something that I wanted to get into. So um, I just got my 40, uh, a while back, my 40-year committee member pin, Yeah. volunteer committee member mm-hmm. pin. So uh, it's been that long ago since I, since I uh, joined. Our whole family um, is pretty much involved in DU as far as volunteer and, and that uh, volunteerism, that kind of thing. Cindy and I, my wife, we met, uh, well, we just celebrated 35 years. Congratulations. Thank you. Um, and... Our first date was a blind date. Oh, yeah? Literally <laughs> in a duck blind. <laughs> so my hunting partner at the time, his name was Val Larson, uh, well-known in the DU community in, in uh, central Iowa. He had four children, and, and all four kids actually had three children. All, th- all three kids, their God-given names on their birth certificates were Drake, Teal, and Woody. <laughs> So uh, he was my he was my my hunting partner for many years until he passed away, but Cindy and his wife were good friends and and so he needed help uh, uh, with these girls you know in the middle of the night and putting out decoys and everything so he asked me to come along, so Cindy and I really didn't know each other very well, but so we say our first date was a blind date. <laughs> The first date that that I ever spent any money on her, I took her to the state Ducks Unlimited convention. So, uh, and we went musky fishing on her honeymoon, and she won Fisherman of the Week. So, uh, so it was a it was a match made in heaven, you might say. And so, thirty five years later, we're still going. Oh, that's amazing! Yeah, my husband's from Massachusetts. I don't think he really realized what he was getting into, but he's in now. So, and we have we have uh, four grandchildren that are they're all legacy green wings yeah. at four different uh, marshes in the state of Iowa. So, yeah, that's really. That's amazing. Um, my youngest grandson, or my oldest grandson, I should say, he was born in close proximity to our uh, annual dinner, the Arrowhead chapter of DU in 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 Des Moines. Um, so I signed him up as a we signed him up as a Green Wing when he was 18 hours old, and he won the he won the gun that day. <gasps> oh, that's right. So, <laughs> so anyhow, we're we're. Uh, Died in the wool. Yeah, you know, my son, my middle son, um, my dad had my dad was state chairman of Mississippi and has been a long time volunteer and he had a green wing project dedicated to him. Wow. And um at the time my son was 
in my belly. So he was not born yet. He had no name. We didn't know when he was going to get here. At the time, I think we might have known he was a boy. I can't even remember. But he's on there as Baby Burke. <laughs> <laughs> but he was there. Yeah, he was there. He's on there. But, he, yeah, he, hasn't, he doesn't have his name on there. But, yeah, so I get it. I think I was the first legacy green wing in Mississippi. Oh, wow. Because my dad started the project. Okay. So, yeah, and Very. my siblings were too old to be legacy green wings anymore, so. What a wonderful project, you know. Oh, yeah, it is. It's a kids. great project. And, um, yeah, the green wing project in general has been a great project, and I enjoyed it as a kid and did a lot with it. So, yeah, I'm glad that you have grandkids to share. Yeah. Do they all hunt? Uh, they they don't all it's two boys and two girls oh, yeah uh the oldest one you know it seems like w once you start going down the line there they really get involved in sports and activities and they might come back man around. it's just hard to find but the oldest one is a hunter and and he's harvested uh, many, several different types of game and yeah. so forth but and they uh, might come around oh, yeah. they might not yeah yeah but they're interested because um uh, i guess du has a new initiative now with uh Oh, the trap. Water, water education. Oh, okay. Um, it's a brand new thing that they're going to start in Iowa, at least, oh, uh, with the schools. That. And my daughter is a superintendent or is a principal at a school, K-12 oh. through 12 school, and she's already uh, in talks with uh, huh. our state chairman and so forth about starting that in in their rural oh, school. Oh, yeah. I thought you were going to say trap programs because that's a new thing yes. that's gotten really, yeah. really popular in high schools and middle schools around here. You can... As a sport, you can do trap, and um, we've gotten really involved in that. Yes, so, we're starting is, to get that more and more around Iowa. So yeah, it's good for uh, college uh, scholarships. Yeah, good. Yeah, wonderful. So, yeah, uh, apparently there's money there. So <laughs> just so you know, out there, people. Um, anyway, so it's really interesting. Uh, I don't want to harp on it because about how you said about your dad passing away and how that drove you back into the outdoors. You know. I can't imagine, but I would I would think that would I could understand that in a way like how it would be a way to reconnect, which is an interesting way to to think about it. Like you can kind of hold on to that connection in a way by sharing that, even though you're still. It created a focus. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. I really I liked hearing that because it's something that I still share with my father today and. And I'm lucky we have that because it's something we'll always have and we get to share that connection and we share that passion for the outdoors. And even if it's not with us hunting, just being in the outdoors and caring about this resource we have. Let's go into collecting a little bit. So when did you first, when did you first learn that there were even things to collect and how did you get introduced into that? Well, our, our family has always been interested in family history and, and the things that go along with the family history, the primitives. And uh, our kitchen, for instance, is just full of family primitives, um, things that we can say this was uh, grandma's, this was great-grandma's, this was so-and-so's. Mm -hmm. And so those uh, so early on when I uh, got it out of college and had a maybe a little bit of money, a disposable income, Really like going to antique shows and and things like that, and every once in a while you would see a decoy uh, at these shows. I had no idea what what they were or anything like that. But uh, my first Evans decoy that I ever collected, uh, I didn't even know it was an Evans. It was at an antique show. It was sitting on a on top of a cupboard or something, and it was in profile, 
And that was from across the room, I saw that decoy and it just drew me to it because of its profile. And, and uh, you know, any collector could probably uh, say that uh, about Mason or Dodge or, right. or, or uh, New Jersey or whatever. Mm-hmm. But it, uh, with these Evans decoys, the profile are, are, are really interesting. And What kind of, what was it? Well, it turned out it was, I, I didn't even really know what it was because it was a, it was a competitive, uh, and we can get into the grades here later, but it was a competitive hen bluebill. Okay. And they're kind of drab. Yep, they are. But the profile was what socked me. So, so I bought it. Um, it was like, I don't know, 60 bucks or something. It was a lot of money. Yeah. And the interesting story is, um, probably 20 years later or 15 years later, I took it to a, to a, uh, I really, really started noticing Evans. And uh, people had them and recognized them as Evans from Ladysmith, Wisconsin, and so forth. So uh, I took it to the Minnesota Decoy Show, and there was a gentleman there by the name of Rupe Neidzel. He had Evans decoys, and he had the Mammoth Evans decoys, which are a lot like the Premier Masons. Really nice paint and everything else. And I pulled this decoy that I had bought, this lowly competitive gray drab (laughs) bluebill out, and and he just went nuts over this bird. He says, "Do you?" He says, "Young man." He says, "Do you know what you have there?" And I said, "No." <laughs> I just knew I wanted that big mammoth Evans that he had on his table. Uh-huh. And he says, "You you have a competitive hen bluebill." He said, "Would you like to Would you like to sell it?" I said, "Well, I, I don't know." <laughs> well, how would you like to trade for one of these that I've got here? So we made a tr- we made a deal, and Rube put that in his collection. And I had the new blue bill, uh, the mammoth. Everybody was happy. And quite a few years later, unfortunately, uh, Rube had come down with cancer, terminal cancer. And came the time that he brought his birds back to that Minnesota show to sell. And he brought that bird back to me. And he said, John, he says, if you want, if you would like to have this bird, I, I brought it for you. And so, so make a long story short. Every time I see that bird, yeah, I think a rube, yeah, and the the journey that that bird made. So that was one of the very first birds that I ever bought. Yeah, yeah. and it turned out to be an Evans. Where, where did you buy? Where was the antique show? In Des Moines. In Des Moines. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it made it down to Des Moines. And that's an interesting about like factory decoys that they tend to travel a little farther than the other, like, you know, the carved decoys and stuff. You seem to find them all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, that's something I always try when you talk about Rube, that community is so important with decoy collecting, Um, especially for new collectors coming in. Like, those, those connections you make just so he can tell you what you have, for one, that you didn't know. Also that you can see that he had all those other Evans out so you can look at all those Evans to see what you might be looking for. Like, I don't think, especially with the internet and stuff, like you just don't get that kind of experience that you really need to have as a new collector. Can you kind of speak on, for you, what your experience was coming into this collecting hobby and what those connections like, how important they were and how they affected what you did from then on? Well, it's it's still true today. You want to orient yourself uh, next to some great collectors, people that are really passionate, interested in what they're collecting, who you can trust, um, obviously, in any, any uh, atmosphere you've got, you may have some sketchy 
But for the 99% of, of the people, the decoy collectors that I know, they're, they're very trustworthy, and most of them are very uh, eager to share information with yeah. you. And they also need to be honest and say, you know, I don't, I don't think you want that bird because of this and this and this. Or, man, that's a great bird. I wish yeah. I could have that bird, but, you know, it's your bird. You found it and yeah. so forth. I had a great friend of mine that the uh, uh, reason we're here in Memphis now, uh, Terry Smart, his collection is in the Waterfell Heritage Museum at yeah. the uh, uh, Pyramid. He gave me a great bit of advice one time. He said, John, he says, never let a decoy come to be, come between friends. And in the 40 years that I've been collecting decoys, it's it's kind of come to a head a couple of times and I've had to step back and say, you know, it's it's just a bird. It's really not worth, um, you know, causing a ruckus, ruckus over. Right. So, uh, you know, that's that's pretty poignant, I mm-hmm. think. Yeah. Never let a bird come between friends. <laughs> and you could probably uh, you could probably um, make that for about anything in yeah. life, I suppose. Yes, probably but so. Jealousy, uh, you know, jealousy or eagerness to have something that somebody else doesn't have. That's kind of takes over once in a while or tries to take over. Yeah. But orient yourself to honest, knowledgeable, passionate collectors. Okay. And you'll do fine. And and handle as many birds, uh, all the experts will tell you, handle as many birds as you as you can. Uh, pick them up, handle them, ask questions about them. That's that's the way you learn. Just, just the way a bird dog learns how to retrieve, uh, the more birds, the better. Yeah. So go to shows. Go to shows. Absolutely. We talked a little bit about Evans decoys, and I have a couple questions about Evans. But before we get into my questions, can you tell us, Everyone's familiar with Mason, for the most part, familiar with Mason decoys. Can you say what Evans decoys are and kind of give the audience who maybe not doesn't know what we're talking about? Sure. Just kind of a basic. Well, a little history. Uh, Walter Evans started started his uh, decoy company in 1928 uh, in Ladysmith, Wisconsin. Uh, he had been a millwright for um, for lumber mills, local lumber mills, and in 1927 he had. He had a terrible fall off of a scaffolding, and it really crippled him up bad uh, for a period of time. And he was out of a job, so he needed something to do. Um, and being a millwright, he knew machinery. He knew lathes and that kind of thing. At the time, again, this is 1928 when mm-hmm. he was starting out. In 1924, Mason went out of business. So there was a void in the uh, world of hunting decoys mm-hmm. at that particular point, a, a, a void of good quality, nice paint, uh, nice big birds, all that kind of thing. So uh, somehow or another, Walter recognized that need and decided to put it all, uh, put it to work for him. The the Evans, Evans Mammoth grade is the best grade that he made. It was a, it was a big bird. It had carving. It had... Uh, sand sanding uh, from a belt sander mm-hmm. on the top of the mandible, almost identical to the uh, Mason Premier, which right. was the best bird that that Mason made. Uh, the paint wasn't quite the same, but it was still upgraded paint and all that kind of thing. So early in the collectors, I haven't heard it for a while in the world of collectors at the shows and things, but they used to refer to Evans, were kind of looked down on. They were called the poor man's Mason. Right. Yeah. I have a question about that later, but we'll, we'll, we'll yeah. keep going. <laughs> so um, 
so anyhow, that that was that was where that transition happened. And and for me, it was lucky that that you know Walter was able to number one uh, recuperate from his fall. Yeah. Number two, and have the resources to do this. Again, you know the 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 USA Great Depression is normally thought of from 1929 to 1941. But it was much. It started much earlier than that. Yeah, it, it was. Yeah. It was. It just didn't all of a sudden one day just happen. Right. The the economists normally say 29 for 1924. 19 for Mason to go out of business. 1928 for Evans to go into business. It was pretty close to hard times. To give you an example, uh, and and this is actually a little bit, it, it amazed me that that he charged so much uh, for his. There were three grades: mammoth, standard, and competitive grade, being the the lowest of workmanship and paint and everything else. He got ten dollars a dozen for the competitives. Really? Yeah, that's and that's he got twenty five dollars a dozen for the uh, mammoths uh, that were. Hollow, for instance. Yeah. yeah. So like he was in Mason. production for about five years, right? About six years, six years. and maybe you could say even uh, his son-in-law took over. Do you uh, think his short time period is because of depress- the depression, or why do you think? I think it was, it was basically because of his health. His yeah. health. Okay. Yeah, I'm sure being around all that noise, uh, uh, we had a show where uh, they brought the somebody had the Evans lathe, mm-hmm. and they stuck, uh, and they had the uh, they had the uh, templates and everything else for the heads and for the bodies. And they said you could have heard that. You could be inside of a building a block away and could hear that huh. lathe. I can't imagine breathing in all that dust either. And, and all, the, all the cedar dust uh, mm. finally got him. Yeah. So he didn't die till 1941, I believe it was. But, uh, yeah, he his was, health was not good. So how old was he when he started? He had been older. You know, I don't know that. I I could figure it out, I yeah. guess, but uh, he, had, he was. He not have been too young. He yeah, he'd spent several years in the in the uh, lumber mills uh-huh. uh, in northern Wisconsin yeah. before that. So he, uh, he was he was at least middle aged, I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. And then yeah, it goes on to his son-in-law for a brief period of time, and that doesn't last long. Yeah, a year. Yeah. Uh, Cloyd uh, Ellingbow, he was the. He was the village undertaker. So can you tell the difference between the, his birds and the other birds? Is uh, You can. You can. So um, how would you tell the difference between the uh, um, they, they look like They look like Evans, uh, speculums and that kind of thing. They're just clunkier. They're just clunkier. Yeah. I, uh, is so that, does a, he is not, that a word? Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I get it. <laughs> so do you mean like clunky as in like has not as good a form or like yeah. it ha- or heavier, blockier. And, yeah. Okay. The um, forms. I don't not. think he made any hollow birds. Okay. They were just they were just more blocky and okay. And the paint uh, the paint wasn't as refined. Walter had um, he started out just himself and another guy early on, and then he hired um, a few ladies in town. One lady is described as a housekeeper, uh, a housewife. But um, I'm reminded when I look at the speculums and things on these Evans birds, I don't remember what they, a toll painting was a, was a fad 20 years ago. And a lot of, a lot of especially the women were good at it. They, they just make royal rolls with their brush and they could make all kinds of petals and things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm reminded that it's, it's like toll painting. It looks like maybe the speculums, the base of the speculums are just one roll with the brush and I can visualize some lady doing it's, that, you yeah. know. Um, and, and women have a have a history of painting decoys in general. So Yeah, um, yeah. 
Well, that's a whole other story. Yeah. <laughs> so so, uh, so he had just he had very little help, but he, uh, you know, they were just the local people in little little Lady Smith. Yeah. Yeah. And so, what did he sell through? So we know, like Mason sold through like Sears and Roebuck and all um, that. But he had, uh, and there's 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 also some thoughts about a, a hardware uh, store decoy mm-hmm. that was made differently, but he sold a lot of decoys. That were just regular uh, to in Chicago, uh, especially Abercrombie and Fitch and uh, VL and A, for instance, were yeah. big hardware outfits then. Uh, Morley and Morley Murphy was a big hardware uh, outfit out of Green Bay. Okay, and um, we found a, a history of an order from Morley Murphy for two hundred and twenty-five dozen. That's so a lot of decoys. That's a lot of decoys. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, especially during the depression yeah, and wooden decoys yeah but there was a there was a real void uh you know for them and yeah. of course uh, green bay's a mecca for diver hunting and so forth so right and i mean those camps were still in operation so they would have needed yeah decoys. yeah absolutely yeah uh there's other rumors of a a large order like that um 150 dozen uh, mammoth pintails for a a big hunting club in texas huh. um None of the none of those birds that anybody knows has ever surfaced. We're always on the lookout for them. But yeah. uh, you know, they, they, he got a lot of orders yeah. uh, for birds, be, and I'm guessing because of the quality, yeah, uh, and probably the price. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, I have two questions. So one is, so when does the Evans uh, Decoy Collector Association? Well, how was what do y'all say? Decoys of Collector Association. How do y'all? What's your title uh the evans society the evans society i always get all of y'all's mixed up (laughs) so the evans society when does that start and how many are y'all now well it was an informal it still is an informal group of people that are interested men and women both that are interested in talking about evans um there's so many um so many facets of the of the Evans company, uh, as far as the decoys, uh, different different things and uh, eccentricities and all, all kinds of things. So so we meet. Uh, it probably started, you know, maybe the Evans Society loosely started thirty years ago, yeah, or maybe more of just two or three guys getting together and talking about bringing bringing some birds to the table and just passing them around and. And so forth. Yeah. Um, now we meet at three different shows. We meet at the at the Minnesota Decoy Show. We meet at the Oshkosh Show. Yeah, and then, naturally. And we also meet at the at the National in Chicago. Okay. Um, and it's usually uh, on a Wednesday or a Thursday evening at eight o'clock or whenever, and everybody gets together. Um, we like to we like to have uh, everybody to bring a bird. That's interested. They can bring two or three birds if they want to. Uh, maybe something interesting about that bird. Maybe something that's a little that's a one-off about that bird, or just something to bring to brag about. So, have you ever found anything? Is anything really cool ever showed up at those shows? Yeah, we've had a lot of really neat, really neat birds show up over the years. The thing that I really like about the Evans, um, the Evans decoys, and and the society, the Evans Society helps make that happen is the unique, the discussions about the uniqueness of things. It's easy to read in. In other words, you could have a bird that's, that it's a one-off mm-hmm. 
And it's easy to try to make up some kind of story in your mind about, you know, why is that a one-off? You know, they, they did this on purpose and so forth. This was during the—we have, have to bring ourselves back and remind us that this was during the Depression. Yeah. They had orders, 225 dozen of a decoy. They have to get out, and all of a sudden they ran out of red eyes. Right. Or they ran out of sanded heads or sanded bodies. So what are you going to do? Are you going to stop production? Or are you just going to slap them together as best you can and get the dang order out the door? Right. So, um, you know, there's several different schools of thoughts. There's some things that are a little bit strange. And some of them, I mean, just could have been a, a miss, like yeah. in production line. Like, oh, we just quality controlled it and Absolutely. Set it. Yeah. Uh, some of the, you know, on the, the uh, mammoths, for instance, they've, they didn't have all the lines and things on the speculum. Somebody just forgot. Yeah. Ran out of time or whatever. They said, oh, what the heck? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh. You know, nobody ever thought of that at that time as being a collector. A collector <laughs> yeah, item. I don't think they were thinking about anybody no. collecting them. So is anything in those, like, come up that has changed, like, a general thought that you had, they all had before and that it's like anything um, changed what you were, what yeah, you thought? Yeah, o- over a period of over a period of years, sometimes the thoughts kind of change a little bit. I, I uh, right at this moment, I guess I can't think of a specific. A strange thing about Evans uh, uh, on the redheads in in the natural world, a redhead duck has yellow eyes. Right. But ninety nine point nine percent of all the Evans redheads have red eyes. Yeah. So you know, it's been speculated for years. Why why does Walter Evans have red eyes in his redheads? They're thinking, you know, maybe he maybe he never saw a redhead, and that's just the way it was, and they just kept going. Um, once in a while, somebody will come up with a redhead, especially a hen redhead, that uh, has yellow eyes. Well, hen redheads and hen bluebills are very very close, even right. in the, even in the real world. Yeah. Um, so in a with a wooden counterfeit decoy, yeah. you know. You know, maybe it was really a bluebill. I, you 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 really don't know. All right. Yeah. Yeah, but those things are really interesting. Because canvasbacks doesn't have red eyes, though. Even though canvasbacks have red eyes, right? Yes. Yeah, he has yellow eyes on the canvasbacks. No, he's he's got red eyes. Oh, he's on, got red on eyes his on canvasbacks. Okay. Yeah. Uh huh. I couldn't remember. Yeah, I knew I knew it was something funny like that. So yeah. my other question going forward, since you've been collecting Evans for so long, what is your thoughts about this, like? In the last, you know, few years, this resurgence of Evans and how the prices are going up. Why do you think that is? Do you just think more people are getting interested in it? Like, why do you think all of a sudden the popularity for Evans is? Well, I have to, I have to give a lot of credit to Terry and Andy's book, yeah, uh, Evans Decoy. We'd been needing a book for for decades, um, and I think there was finally enough interest and in, in a couple of guys that finally decided to put the effort out. And and had the collections to, and the the network to support photographs and and um, research and and so forth and so on. So mm-hmm. um, it's a pretty comprehensive book. Andy Shonich and Terry Smart put this book out. Shonich. So, Shonich. I've been saying that wrong for a long time. Okay. Andy Shonich. <laughs> so Evans Decoys, uh, Evans Duck Decoy Factory, the reference guide. So many, many, many photographs, really nice photographs and so forth, and some nice information, and they show shipping labels and all kinds of different things, even though the, the factory was only in business for 
roughly six years. Yeah. He put out a, a great number of decoys. How many, I wonder how many he was making a day. You know, <laughs> this is really strange because <laughs> we have we have sat around and once in a while maybe somebody's had a couple too many drinks and they decide that the, that we should try to count how many decoys that we think that he probably did based upon the collections that are out there mm-hmm. and so forth. Um You'd never get to that number. <laughs> I'm sure the math comes out different every time. <laughs> uh, yeah, but you, that's even true. you have to be curious on how many he made a day because that I mean that's that's well, large. They had duplicating lays. I think that would do you know maybe a half dozen at a time. Right. Yeah. 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 This is a one-on-one deal. So uh, yeah. and they had the, they had to use the same lays for the heads and for the bodies. Yeah. So they, oh, so yeah, he was using so the same. they'd make okay. a bunch of heads, and then they'd make a bunch of bodies, and then they'd uh, shave them down, and then they'd they'd sand them and paint them, and yeah. Yeah. So, they so how many have, was Mason doing? Was he still doing one-on-one? or? Uh, I guess I can't tell you that. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know about that. I don't know at the end. Early on, I don't know if they had the multiple output decoy lathes or not. Uh, in the I don't in the think 20s I, and the 10s. Yeah, I don't know if they did. He might at the end, but I'm not sure because you know he gets his from Dodge and then yeah yeah well yep. Peterson then Dodge yep. and, yeah they a just real kind progression of, there yeah there's mm-hmm. a progression there so yeah. I don't know exactly how many they could but it wasn't that many and their paint was so complicated so, yeah yes um, yes yeah that, they weren't putting out a whole lot yeah well this is a good spot for our break let's just take a couple minutes and we'll be right back. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're We're conservationists. We're conservationists. With the next generation. generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. Take it outside. So is there anything that I haven't asked about Evans that you would like to let our 
tell our listeners about? Yeah, there's probably a few things. The, the, there was three grades of the Evans. He made a mammoth, he made a standard, and a what they call a competitive grade. And each one was, the mammoth was the largest, um, came in a hollow, and all a two-piece hollow, which meant it was it was sliced longitudinally through the bird, and then each half was hollowed out. Those were the most expensive at $25 a dozen, and he also made solid mammoths. Um, the standards, he, he offered those in hollow as well as solid, although those were tube hollow. So in other words, in the breast, uh, he would bore a hole. Uh, on the bigger birds, it was an inch and nine-sixteenths hole, and on the teal, it was an inch and three-eighths hole. And it would, he'd, he'd drill the hole longitudinally through the breast towards the tail, and um, uh, uh, that made him a little more buoyant and a little bit lighter and, and so forth. And some of the things that come out of the Evans Society, we were, we were talking about the Evans Society, one of the speculations was that uh, Walter was a really frugal guy, and he, he, was, he was known for not using dry wood, dry cedar. So consequently, he was, uh, Evans decoys are notorious for cracks. And um, one thought about uh, the, the standard grade making them um, uh, tube hollow was most of the cracks culminated at the breast or maybe they even started at the breast. And once they once he bored that hole in the breast, it stopped the crack. And then he bored the hole and then he and then they plugged that hole and then sanded it and primed it and painted it and so forth and so on. So on many, many of the hollow uh, standard grades, you don't even see a hole. Right, yeah. Uh, but if the paint's worn, you can see that hole and you can measure it and so forth. So, But the crack always stops at that. So maybe that was useful, uh, maybe it wasn't. And then they made a competitive grade, uh, which was just a, a basic paint, uh, if hardly any paint at all, and it was solid. Unsanded. Unsanded both head and body. Uh, so it was very minimal effort. You know, some of, the, some of the later decoy companies called that the feather finish. Uh, they thought the ducks, uh, you know, that roughness, they thought it was... Uh, feathers. Feathers, yeah. Yeah, no, that was just... No, no. But uh, going back on to uh, Walter being a frugal man, uh, he was notorious for his, for his wood. Uh, he didn't invest in a kiln or he didn't invest in dried blanks. Um, so the splits were common and and... In many cases, and it's really common to find on an Evans decoy, where they have fixed the split, and it, the the and he did that a couple different ways. He would take a a split, and he would take a piece of wood and and put it into that split, and then use a corrugated fastener, um, which was like a, a flat piece of metal that's corrugated. And you see it a lot in the uh, old window frames in the corners. That's how they keep the corners together mm -hmm. is drive that corrugated fastener or corrugated nail in there. And there's a lot of, um, a lot of these that have what, what we call, we refer to as a Dutchman. Right. And a Dutchman is, is Walter Evans's fix for split decoys. He was also um, so he was he fixing those splits before he sent them out, or are they coming back? To no, be no, fixed? no, no. He they fixed those before they uh, they fixed them, and then they sanded them, primed them. In many cases, you don't see the corrugation, but over the years, the corrugated nails. But over the years, as the paint um, 
you know, gets wet and dries and so forth and so on, it might, it, the paint might uh, fall off at that. Okay. In some cases, we see where, you know, that big clunky lathe uh, knock big hunks out of the side of the decoy, you know, maybe, yeah. maybe 50 cent size pieces. Uh, and they might, it's common, fairly common to see a piece of wood put back in there with a couple of brads holding it to the rest of the decoy yeah. and sanded, primed, painted, so forth. Yeah, so he wasn't uh, throwing anything away. No, he, he, <laughs> we, still call that a, we still call that a Dutchman, but yeah. Uh, yeah. He used, uh, he must have used some really cheap brown paint because yeah. most of his birds that have brown, the hens, for instance, it's really hard to find a hen Evans that's in pristine brown paint. And uh, so so one of the neatest things that we've talked about in the Evans Society is, you know, why do we have decoys, for instance, hen decoys, as an example, that have really crappy brown paint on them, and you turn them over, and there's a fresh-looking Evans decoy stamp on the bottom. Okay. And the stamp was the part that was in the water and out of the water and dry and so forth and so on. At some point, somebody said, you know, there's and there's always copycats and so forth that might have a, you know, it's easy to make a stamp and put a stamp on there. But but a lot of these, a lot of these that you see, they have a dark stamp and, a, and a, maybe a crappy paint. Well, it just so happens that in the small town of Ladysmith, he must have been friends with either the postmaster or the one of the people in the Ladysmith post office. And he, I'm going to use air quotes with my fingers, he borrowed the ink from the Ladysmith post office to use in his stamp pad. Huh. And, of course, the U.S. government has uses nothing but the best, you know, at that time, the best indie ink that you could you could find. So the ink survived all the graph that a that a decoy takes, <laughs> um, but whereas maybe the paint uh, didn't. Yeah. Yeah, it was just kind of interesting. Yeah, that stories. is interesting, and it is crappy brown paint. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. didn't, and it's not even a good color brown. Yeah, a lot of it fell off and yeah. and so forth. But yeah, just little. You know, that's that's those are the kind of uh, idiosyncrasies and and different irregularities that really interest me. Yeah. In the world of collecting. It's it's not always about the decoy, but it's about the those kind of things and, and the people that we meet along the way. And, oh yeah. Uh inner uh, you know, network with. Right. And the stories of how those collectors made their decisions on what they decided to do is just as interesting as what the object was made for. Like Yes. Um and you can talk about that with a lot of makers. So what else do you collect and why did it drive you to move on? So you started collect did you start collecting with Evans and then move from there? Well, or it, how did your collecting evolve? Well, I really liked probably because I could afford them when I was younger, the factory decoys. Mm -hmm. So the animal traps and the Pascagoula birds and the Jefferson Jeff City birds and so forth. Um, I really like the factory birds, but then I, you know, I, I collect some Illinois River birds before, and so forth. Hold on, before we go any farther, because I think this has never actually been explained to our listeners. But what is the difference between a factory bird that we're referring to versus like a carved bird versus like what we get out of factories? Well, basically, a, a bird that has been turned on a lathe. Okay. Um, and and either finished or not finished versus a hand carver 
uh, that car- carves the birds by hand with a spoke shave or with a knife okay. or or whatever. Yeah. yeah. I just want to like yeah. clarify it real quick just yeah. in case people are confused. And there's a true distinction between between those. Yes. And there's some people that collect only factory birds. There's some people that collect only hand carved birds. And there's uh, there's a lot of us that collect both. You know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the factory birds were were really what where I got started, and, and Evans was part of that, those factory birds. I started really getting interested in Evans, and, and of course, the shows that we go to mostly are in the north, so there's a lot of Evans to be found up there, mm-hmm. and a lot of other Evans collectors there, so I just naturally, I think, gravitated. Plus, I liked the liked the form, mm-hmm. naturally gravita- gravitated Evans. I've got about, I don't know, 60 or so Evans in my collection. Uh, there's people that's got a lot more than that, but uh, I try to collect nice birds, you know, r- really nice birds and so forth. And then um, Illinois River, those are all uh, hand-carved uh, birds. Recently, within the last five years or so, I got really interested in uh, Jack Musgrove. He was a um, he was a carver in Iowa, uh, lived in Des Moines, curator of the Iowa Historical Museum for 40 years, uh, carved in six decoy uh, in six decades, and was competitor in decoy carving contests in the 40s, 50s, 60s, and 70s with some of the world-known carvers, both dead and, and alive. So uh, I, I was fortunate enough to write a, uh, an article for Decoy Magazine. It, was a, it happened to be a, a cover story article on Jack Musgrove. So a friend, I, I ran into a, a gentleman that uh, was a uh, it's in it's all in this article, but I ran into a gentleman that was a young uh, a young guy when he happened to meet Jack Musgrove in the marsh, and um, they were killing all the birds over the Musgrove birds, and this this uh, young kid didn't couldn't couldn't get a bird within range, so he went over to talk talk to Jack, and uh, uncharacteristic uh, uh, Jack kind of took him under his wing, hmm. and taught him how to carve and so forth. So. Uh, he he had uh, Jack had bequeathed uh, before he died in 1980. His wife bequeathed these decoys that he had left in gunny sacks um, underneath the, in the basement for many many years. Uh, hand, they're all hand carved uh, beautifully. Some of them are contest winners. Uh, some of them are in the Iowa, uh, uh, in the Iowa Historical Museum now on display mm-hmm. uh, and in the archives. So we were fortunate enough to have about 60 decoys come to market. And first uh, first thing we did was write an article. I wrote the, nar- the article on Jack Musgrove, some beautiful decoys. So uh, so I collect, uh, consequently, I collect Jack Musgrove decoys along with other people as well. Yeah, they're beautiful. And he, um, the interesting thing about him was that whatever he killed, he carved. Really? So huh. uh, he's, there's a uh, mallard uh, pintail hybrid, for instance, that he killed. Uh, there's a Eurasian widgeon. Where does he get this he, Eurasian widgeon in Iowa? Uh, just, it happened to be a transient. Okay. <laughs> so they killed one and decided that it had to be in the spread. Huh. So the next year that bird was in the spread. He Interesting. F- he first put it in the contest, put it in a, a national decoy contest somewhere, Burlington, or mm-hmm. uh, he had he entered contests as far away as New York at the National Sportsman Show mm-hmm. and things like that, Chicago. So he and, did working and decorative. As did he do decorative decoys um, as well? Later on, he did a few decoratives. Okay, um, but 
uh, most most. Every, most everything was a working decoy, okay. even if it was a blue ribbon winner in the national contest. Okay, it it's, went it went in the spread. It went in the spread. Yep. Yeah, that's crazy that he had been hunted over. And he didn't sell uh, he didn't sell any decoys except one time he s- sold to um, George Herder. Okay. And um, there's a model of Herder's plastic decoys that are modeled after after Jack Musgrove's wooden birds that he carved for him. So if he wasn't selling any, how? What's his production? Like, how many do you think he produced? Well, we th- best as we can think, he he carved maybe 150 decoys in his career. Oh, wow. That's not many. N- not many, yeah. No, that's amazing. Was he making a living this way or was he... No, no, no. Yeah, this, what was he doing for to make a living during this? Uh, he was the curator for the Iowa Historical Museum. Okay. Well, that's really cool. Yeah. And he was a master taxidermist and all kinds of mm-hmm. things, so... So where do you think his influence came from? Well, um... We don't know. Yeah, because um, it's hard to tell. We we do know that they that he competed against, like I said, some some of the national carvers back in the day. Right. Yeah. So maybe he was getting influenced while he was at the shows and, and stuff. I think it probably went both ways. Probably. Yeah. Uh, Jack was pretty innovative with uh, inserts and that kind of thing, uh, raised primaries and so forth mm-hmm. in his hunting decoys. In fact, he was chastised at one of his show at one of the national shows. Because he had raised primaries on a hunting decoy, huh. but they still hunted hunted with them. And I've got I've got a beautiful goose that one of the primaries you can tell has been knocked off and glued back on, but hmm. it's got shot holes in it and everything else. Yeah, you know? yeah, that's very unique for a carver. Yeah, yeah. he was highly innovative with wow. different things. So we really like the form of of him. And there's there's uh, several of us Musgrove collectors around yeah. that have some fantastic. Uh, they're fantastic birds, but the neatest part about it is, ninety nine percent of them are part of was were part of his stool. Right, that he hunted over these yes. birds. Yeah, so that's that's very unusual because yeah. that that you would get, which is kind of neat that you get to hunt. Well, you're not hunting over them, but you have the birds that he shot birds over. Yeah. So a long tail. He did he shoot that? Shot, <laughs> shot, uh, all these all these birds were killed in <laughs> Iowa. Some of these are uh, a little surprising. Yeah, old squaw. So I'm looking at his magazine article with the decoys <laughs> in it. Uh, yeah, that old squaw is a little. Yep. All right. Yeah. Okay, he's far from home. Yeah. Anything barrels, golden eye. Yeah, Eurasian widgeon, all kinds of crazy things. Yeah, that's crazy. I mean, you can, some of these you can be like, all right, okay, okay. Yeah. But yeah, that's, yeah, the Eurasian widgeon and the old squaw in Iowa was a little surprising. Yeah. But I don't think they, he was a liar. They happen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I like this and the tip up too. Did he have many tip ups or just he the had, one? Um, that I know of, he had three or four tip ups and some, uh, and I include in that uh, headless birds as well. Yeah. That looked like they were feeding. Yeah. Mm-hmm. These feeding birds. Like I said, he, he was really innovative. Yeah, I'm learning about him. I didn't really know much about Jack Musgrove. This is all new to me. So before we end, is there anything else you would like to mention to our audience? Well, um, if you have a if you have a chance to get into, you know, if you have any interest at all in decoys and you have a chance... Go to a show. That was going to be my next question. My one question I always like to ask is if you have any advice for new collectors or people interested. Just handle as many birds as you can. Ask as many collectors. Uh, you'll you'll, you'll uh, cultivate some wonderful friendships. There's lots of times that Cindy and I go to shows not expecting to buy a decoy. Yeah. Uh, we usually do. <laughs> but uh, we're there to see the friends and talk about 
things and we almost learn something every time. Yeah. Do you have a favorite decoy? I can't. It, it's like picking out a favorite grandkid. It's, it's like your favorite kid? <laughs> um, uh, do you have a, uh, your most interesting find? These 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 Musgrove decoys that that uh, I happened to yeah. find this guy um, and and become friends with uh, with uh, Barry Kenny, and he had these sixty Musgrove decoys in his basement uh, underneath the stairs. That is pretty um, crazy. I mean, it was like it was like uh, a Christmas for a year. Yeah, uh, learning something new every day about him and and seeing these things. The most important thing in my life was or in my mind is fresh to the market. Yeah. And you, you see that term at auctions and things. I mean, anytime you can you can have a decoy that hasn't been in somebody else's hands, another collector's hands, uh, it's really a special thing. It is, yeah, and it's rare. It's yeah, very it, it, rare. It, it is rare. Yeah. You know, as we as we age and age out and die and all kinds of things, you know, they, they just they keep making the circulation. But, uh, yeah, fresh to market is really uh, exuberating. Well, John, thanks so much for coming on the show. This Thank is fun. You. Thank you for asking me. Yeah, Katie. this is fun. Thanks again to our special guest, John Munson. Thanks to our producer, Chris Isaac. And thanks to you, our listeners, for supporting wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. And visit www.ducks.org slash podcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the Ducks. Stay tuned to the Ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Mossy Oak has partnered with Ducks Unlimited to bring you Shadowgrass Habitat, the official camo of Ducks Unlimited. Shadowgrass Habitat pays homage to the first waterfowl-specific camo pattern ever made, Mossy Oak Shadowgrass, while incorporating the most realistic, digitally accurate images of the natural habitats that make up true waterfowl habitat. Mossy Oak is committed to conservation as its highest priority. With the launch of Mossy Oak Shadowgrass Habitat, Mossy Oak will continue funding habitat protection projects through our longtime partnership with Ducks Unlimited. Check out the new Shadowgrass Habitat pattern at mossyoak.com. Step into the world of Campus Waterfowl, a community that's shaping the future of the hunting industry. At Campus Waterfowl, we're more than just hunters. We're students. We're, students. we're, conservationists. we're conservationists with the next, generation. the next generation. Join us as we highlight the dedication and commitment of young hunters nationwide. Visit CampusWaterfowl.com to become part of our story. Campus Waterfowl, the future of hunting starts here. We are the Ducks Unlimited Nation. United by our passion for hunting, the outdoors, and conservation. The habitats that Ducks Unlimited have been maintaining and building since 1937 have effects far beyond the duck hunting community. Follow along with our YouTube series as we tell your stories and become part of the Ducks Unlimited Nation. DU Nation. 
take it outside.